Generations Church, welcome to 2021. I know we are ready to be done with 2020. We're into a new year. We have great hopes, right? How could it be any worse? Gosh, anyhow. Uh, so here we are, brand new season, and I want to get us kind of, a, kind of up to our teaching series. Here's where we were. When we left off in 2020, uh, in the fall of 2020, from August on through November, what we did is we worked on Sundays through the book of Exodus. At the same time, our community groups worked through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, <clears throat> called the Torah, the law of God. But it's also the beginning of the people of God. And so as we worked our way through that, we studied one of those books, and we kind of worked through in our community groups through that entire section. Uh, as a church, we also picked up a habit of reading Scripture daily. And so as we enter into 2021, we're going to be in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So if you want to turn there, uh, it's about nine books into the Old Testament. And after the first five, you get Joshua and Judges. And what happens is God's people, led by Joshua, the, the assistant to Moses and the, the successor of Moses, Joshua moves them into the promised land that God gives them. Moses isn't able to go in. Moses sins, and, and, and God says, you're prevented from going into the promised land. So Moses literally climbs up a mountain and looks onto the promised land and dies. And that's where the Torah kind of completes. And then Joshua, his, uh, his assistant and, and who succeeds him, he takes the people across the body of water into the promised land. And, and Joshua tells the stories of them conquering the people that are in the land. As God sends them in, he gives them favor in war, and they take the land. And they begin to settle in the land. And from there, it doesn't really go great. It, it, it isn't as good as it should have been. In fact, by the time we get to the next book, Joshua, to Judges, uh, things are all over the place. And we have kind of political leaders that are leading Israel. And uh, Judges isn't a great setting. It's, the, the people aren't doing well. We get Ruth. And Ruth uh, picks up and it tells this story during that same time where God allowed a plague on the land, and so this family leaves because there's no food. And it tells the journey of them coming back. And we talked a little bit about Ruth uh, in our Christmas message, in our Advent series. First and Second Samuel is the story of kind of the rise and the fall of the kingdom of Israel. And what happens is they begin to have kings that rule over them. And some of their kings are very good. David's very good. Solomon's very good. And, and the kingdom grows, and then some are not so good. Rehoboam follows after that, and, and it's not so good. And so we're going to look at the rise and the fall of Israel. And we're going to do that really through a unique lens. It's first and second Samuel. It's got 55 chapters to it. We'll spend close to six months in it, but we can't even cover all that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on key people, the prophets and the kings, the people that lead Israel both in their, uh, their kind of their governance as well as their spiritual leadership. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 1 today. And as we do this, we're looking at it not to be, you know, Jewish historians or academics about Jewish history, but that we might learn about ourselves. And so here's a main idea for you today, the rise and fall of God's people. The Bible takes us through successes and failures of Israel, not as a Jewish history lesson, but for insight into our own tendencies as God's people. So as we look at this, as we see the rise and the fall, the successes, the failures, the high points and the low points of these people, we're going to ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in this story? How do we see ourselves in this? Will you pray with me and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you. As we gather this morning, we begin a brand new year, a brand new series. 
we have your word to go through, and we work our way into the next section of Scripture. As we work our way through the entire, all the, kind of the big story of Scripture, we now move into the, the rise and the fall of Israel. And again, we do that, that we might find ourselves in the story, that we might see ourselves, the church, inside this story of God's people. And so help us to see that today, God. Help us to find ourselves in our tendencies and our, our strengths and our weaknesses, our highs and our lows, if you will, inside of this, this story about these people. These are people you loved and walked with, and, and we are people you love and you walk with, and so we have that commonality. Help us to learn from our past, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 1. <clears throat> says, there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Zoph, the Ephraimite, Ephrathite. And he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, and, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where, his two, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. And so here's who we start out with. We start out with this man named Elkanah. And I want to look at the culture that he lives in. I want to look at the setting that Elkanah exists in, right? And, and so, kind of like us, we live in a church context. What that means is that there are norms, right? That we go to church on a Sunday and that we, you know, have worship and teaching and that there are ushers and greeters and whatever, right? We live in this culture and that our faith, our, our Christianity is shaped by the culture we live in. Well, their Judaism, if you will, their faith, was shaped by the culture they live in. So here's Elkanah. He is your average believer, if you will. Kind of take average Christian today. This is Elkanah. He's probably your average Jewish believer of that day. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that he's good or bad. He's probably like the culture that he lives in. And so here's what we hear, that he's a regular, he goes to church regularly, if you will. He probably serves in a ministry somewhere, if, if you want to follow what I'm saying, right? He, he does what is normal for a man of faith in his day. But there's also something that we hear. It says that he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now, we have to ask ourselves, okay, is this just the culture they lived in? I know they were in a, an agrarian setting, meaning they raised cattle and crops for a living. I mean, that's kind of what the, the entirety of their world was. They, most people did that. And so in this culture, you needed children. Your children would help you farm the land. Your children would help you shepherd the flocks. They would help you kind of do what you needed to do to live. And they would inherit your business. Your sons would inherit and take over from you. And they would inherit the land you lived in. And so as the Midrash, the Jewish scholars uh, talk about this, they say this, that Elkanah seems to have been married to Hannah for about 10 years, and he loved Hannah, right? And, and so after 10 years of marriage and her being barren, it seems that he took Penina, he took on a new wife. And so he did so probably because he needed children to work the land. And so that is some assumption we can kind of take that's probably probably true, and we can, we can get out of the story. And the other comes from Jewish scholars, right? That they say, well, this is the story. The people that lived that and studied it and, and did it best, they, they kind of tell us a bit about this. And so what I want to see is, is what I want to look at is Elkanah's kind of how he lives in his culture. And that's super important because he's a product of the culture he's in. Like we are products of the church culture that we're in. And so he has two wives, Hannah and Penina, 
And, and, and that isn't God's design for marriage. We see God create marriage, one man, one woman, right? And he says to Adam that you'll, you'll leave your father and mother and you'll cling to your wife and you'll become a family, right? He doesn't change that. He doesn't add that in. Well, unless you need more kids, you don't have more wives. God never says that. God repeats the one man, one woman theme. But all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is a culture springs up that is polygamous, if you will. So here's a, here's a note for you. This is in the app. We'll put it on the screen Normal isn't always okay. Scripture reveals how easy and acceptable it is for people to do wrong things when life doesn't go their way. We need to ask ourselves, how do we do this today? So Elkanah's situation is he needs kids to work the land, and the culture, the people of faith, the Jewish people, the Jewish culture is that a man will take more than one wife. Now, that's not what God has called them to do. God has called them to have one wife. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this is a common theme. We see it as a sin of Abraham's. We see it on forward, right? And so in this setting, what I want to point out is that this was normal. Here's what he's doing. He's taking both of his wives to go to his annual worship service where he kind of goes to the big church where they celebrate their big holidays, right? We just got out of Christmas, right? And imagine showing up to Christmas with two full families and just thinking, this is totally normal. That's Elkanah, right? Verse 4, it says, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival, meaning Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so they live in a broken world. Like we live in a broken world, they lived in a world broken with sin too. Just There's a lot of cultural things that we see are the the product of living in a broken world, right? So there's a woman who can't have kids, right? That is a result of sin, not her sin necessarily, but just the flaws in a human body like cancer, right? It wasn't designed by God. Barrenness wasn't designed by God. She lives in a broken world. And part of that is she can't have kids, right? Now there's a man who has two wives because he needs children, right? I gotta have these kids to work this land. And I've had this wife for a decade and I had no kids and so he took another wife, again, living in a broken world. There's favoritism between the two because he really loves Hannah, but he needs Panina, right? And so we see this favoritism inside of his marriages. The one wife is jealous of the other wife because this one can't have kids and this one can, and then this one is jealous of this one because she has the husband's heart, if you will. And so really what we see is this, this setting of brokenness, this This world just kind of marred with sin and the way people are living inside of that broken world. And again, these are people of faith. So I want to zoom back out for a minute and just kind of leave that there and say, okay, that's got to be us too. We live in this church world. We live in this context. And there's probably things that we're doing all the time that we just kind of, we accept because they're our culture. We just kind of, they just kind of go by us, right? But they're not what God has called us to. And that's why we have Scripture. That's why we have the beauty of Scripture that we can kind of lean into Scripture and ask ourselves, okay, what has God called us to? So before we go any further, we just got to pause and understand for ourselves, we probably do this too. I was trying to think, of what's a good example? What's something we do today that would be so, that if somebody from, you know, 4,000 years ago snapped into our reality today, what would be surprising to them? How would they see Christians acting and say, wow, that is so far away from 
how God causes us or calls us to act. And, and I thought of an example 2,000 years ago, and I thought of the religious leadership, Pharisees and Sadducees. Those are the, the primary leaders of Jesus' day. And the, the Pharisees uh, on this side, they're, they're the uber-religious, kind of the, the, the legalists over here. And then the Sadducees are the ones that are very much more cultural, right? They're more like the culture they live in. Both have flaws. Jesus has issues with both of them, right? And so Jesus points out, like, there's these two leadership groups inside of Judaism, and both of them are flawed. But Judaism of that day is either this way or that way. Those are the two mainstreams of Judaism. We have that today, right? We have Republicans and Democrats. And no, they're not religious leaders, but Christians treat them like religions, right? There are people that are, that are Christians that are Democrats that swear by the tenets of this, that this more honors Jesus. And then there are Christians that are Republicans that, that swear that this is more biblical. This is a more biblical version of Christianity. And, and they divide over these two things and argue on social media, right? We just went through this in September. And I know there's the runoff in Georgia, so it kind of keeps that, that hype and the politics going. But I think if somebody fast-forwarded from 4,000 years ago into this setting, they would see this and go, how do you guys reconcile that with your faith? How do you do this? And, and, and I think what it is for us is we are so saturated in this culture, it's so common that it gets preached from the pulpits. It gets used, it gets used all over the place. We just don't see it. And there's got to be hundreds of those things. That's what we're looking at in here. We want to see how do we measure ourselves truly by Scripture and not by the culture we live in. Verse 7. So I went on year by year, and often as she went up to the house of the Lord, so it went on, excuse me, year by year, and often she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to, provide where, she used to provoke her, excuse me. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So this teasing, this mockery went on year by year. Panina would mock Hannah for not having kids, and she was doing it out of a jealousy because Elkanah, to be fair, loved Hannah more and was giving her double. And so Panina's pushing and aggravating Hannah, and it goes on year by year by year. And this is the thing that happens as they're going to their big celebration at church, right? And you got to kind of fit that back in the context. Again, they're people of faith, they're going to church. They're going to a big, big ceremonial service. And this is the run-up to it. Verse 8, it says, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I don't recommend this as a solid husband intro when your wife is crying. Well, am I not more to you than ten sons? But that's what Elkanah says to her. Hey, isn't it enough that you have me? Verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So Hannah's, they're in town, they're in Shiloh now. And, and Hannah gets up after the meal and everything is done. And she heads over towards the temple where Eli is. And Eli's the priest. And in verse 3, we heard about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were also priest of the Lord, it says. Then verse 9, Eli, the priest. These are the men kind of like pastors that help lead the temple, right? They help, they're kind of the church leaders of the day. Verse 10, it says, she, meaning Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So Hannah takes her her pain, her, her struggle of not having children, and she takes it off, and she is just weeping, and she is, she is going through this pain. She takes this to the temple to go and to pray 
and to put her pain before the Lord. Do you have something in your life that, um, that is that one, th- it's the thing, right? It's the thing you pray about all the time that it, it just hasn't happened yet, right? It's the, it's the thing that you think is, and, and you may be right, I don't know what it is, but it's the thing you think will be it's the answer that unlocks the rest of your life. And, and maybe some of you are single and wishing you had a mate to spend a life with. And maybe some of you are like Hannah and not able to have children and have struggled to have kids. Um, maybe you are in a marriage and the marriage is a challenge. Or maybe you're raising kids and the kids are a challenge. I mean, all those things are possible. And yet you, you cry out and you take those things to the Lord. That's Hannah. She's in this place where this is the thing that really controls the rest of her life. It, it's the thing that shapes who she is the most. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, so she prays and she, she swears and takes a vow to God. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So here's literally what she says. So God, if you will hear my prayer, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you and let him just grow up inside the priesthood. More than just priesthood, she kind of makes mention of a no razor will touch his head. It's, it's, a, it's called the Nazarite vow. It's this, it's this kind of almost think there's, there's pastors and priests or whatever, and then there's like monks, right, that kind of go even further. And it's, it's that kind of thing, where they're going to take this lifelong vow. She says, listen, if you'll just give me a son, God, I will, I will take him and I will hand him right back to you. I just want a son. And I will give him to you and I will put a vow on him and he, he will live a life committed to you. Verse 12. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So Hannah is praying. She's kind of probably praying inside of her, but her mouth keeps going, right? You know, it's like somebody who's reading a book silently, but you can see their lips going with it, right? And that's what she's doing. But Eli, the priest, sees her, and he assumes she's drunk. Now, I just how jaded of a priest do you have to be where you see someone weeping and their mouth going and you just assume they're drunk, not hurting, right? That's his go-to. Like, man, she's probably been drinking too much, you know, getting ready for this festival. That's probably who she is, right? But is it more common to see people who profess faith to do sinful things or to do right things? And if, if I'm guessing here, we don't know this, we, 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 we're kind of just dipping into this culture here right now, we'll, we'll see a lot more of it, but what Eli is seeing here is he knows God's people don't look the way they're called to look. So his assumption, though jaded, is probably true. And as we see others, we see Elkanah, we see his sons, which we're going we're gonna to get into in the, next, in the next message, the people of God aren't doing really well. And this should give us pause, Right? Eli knows this, and he's in leadership, but he can't really fix it all. I'm going to see how he attempts to do that and what God does instead. But in that, he knows the people of God aren't where, they're, where they should be. I think coronavirus restrictions has revealed that to the church, that the church isn't all it should be. The church is very politicized. It's very divided. It's very distrustful. It gets caught up in a lot of conspiracy theories. It's, the church has this tendency to kind of be more American and American rights-based 
than submitted to Scripture and authority. And, and that's been a struggle for churches, plural, in America. All churches have struggled through this. And I think that's what we see with Eli. Just kind of, he looks and he sees the landscape of God's people not being where they should be. And that's his natural instinct, his reaction, if you will. The starting point. Here's a note for you. Israel had a, a jaded priesthood, polygamy, and average sinful people. So begins a great kingdom. It gives us hope that God can also heal the church today, right? It begins with kind of a jaded priesthood, polygamy, run wild, right? And an average believer who's just more likely to be sinning than to be doing the right thing. That's the starting point. And yet, if you know anything about Scripture, this is about to become the kingdom of Israel where God rules and reigns. And it's, it's going to have highs and lows. It's going to have problems. But it's going to be a fairly godly nation. Here's the starting point. And I think what that does for us as a church is it gives us hope when we look at and we assess the culture that we live in, the Christian culture that we live in. I don't mean the nation, not the American culture, not the Southern California culture, not the political landscape, but the Christians. When we look at Christians today, we know that we're not all we're supposed to be. And it's, it's this that gives us hope, that, that God can take problematic, average believers and do amazing things if we, the average problematic believers, will surrender to God. That's our hopes for today. Verse 14, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? So Eli says to Hannah, why are you drunk, right? How long are you going to continue to do this? Put your wine away from you, he says. Verse 15, and Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah says, no, I haven't even been drinking. I'm just crying out to God. My heart is in such pain that I'm bringing my struggles, my trials, my pain to God. Now, I want to contrast this a bit. We've got Elkanah, who's kind of a cultural Jew of the day, right? He, he probably does a lot of great things. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, in about 20 verses from now, his name's going to be used for the last time in all of the Bible, so we don't know a lot about him. But what we do know is he's kind of a cultural Jew, right? He's, he's Jewish, he's going to church, he's doing, going to temple, he's doing his thing, he's celebrating, he's worshiping God, but he's also living like the culture, taking multiple wives, having these struggles. So he's, he's average, right? He's not some superhero, some, not some rock star. He, he's an average believer. Then we see Eli, the priest, who can't seem to help get things back together, even though he knows they're wrong. He's a little jaded. When he sees people, he kind of assumes they're sinning, and that's probably fair. That's probably often what he's experienced. But then we see Hannah, and what we see from Hannah is though this one thing has plagued her life. So all of her life, she's probably wanted to be a mom. We don't know how old she is, but we know she's been married for quite some time. And if the, Midr if the Midrash is correct, if the Jewish scholars are correct, there was 10 years of her marriage before Elkanah married Panina, and she's got a bunch of kids. So that's a bunch of years, right? How many ever that is. So Hannah's probably a little older, and this is probably all she's wanted all her life. And here she is, year by year, she goes up to the temple, she goes out to Shiloh to worship, she brings this pain before God. So there's a contrast in Hannah. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Hannah provides us a character that God can use, because even in her struggles, she doesn't compromise her faith. She models faithfulness to us today. 
right? Even in her pain, she doesn't, well, I don't have kids, so I'm going to go live this way. Well, God hasn't met me here, so I'm going to do this. Instead, though it is a deep and visceral and, and obvious a, a, a life pain that she's dealing with, she continues to bring it to God. She continues to do the right thing and honor God in her life. Verse 17, it says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So he gives her two things. He tells her two things. Go in peace, and may God grant your prayer request. This pain you're in, this struggle that's consumed your life, right? So much so that here you are, and you're, you're weeping, and you're praying, and your mouth is moving. And I thought, really, you'd been drinking. This thing, be at peace. Man, God is with you. Be at peace. And may God answer your prayers, Eli says. Verse 18, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Again, Hannah's faithfulness, right? And her face was no longer sad. Now, she's not pregnant. She doesn't have a kid. None of those things that she's asking God for have been accomplished yet, but, but she's trusting. She's being faithful. The priest has told her, be at peace, man. God has heard your prayer. May God answer your prayers. May God give you what you desire. And her countenance changes, and she eats. And she goes away no longer looking sad. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning. So this is back to Elkanah, Penina, Hannah, Penina's kids, etc. right? So they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remember her. So they go to church. They go off and celebrate. They go to their temple, right? They rise early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. Again, people of faith, right? Even how broken and how messy the lives they're in and, and how some obvious ways they're not honoring God, but they still love God, right? And they're still believers and they're still off to go to their version of church, right? And so they rise early in the morning. They go, they worship God. Hannah does so in faith, right? And then it says, and this is a beautiful line, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. God's faithfulness, even amongst a wayward people, God remembered her. Hannah's prayer request not only rose up to God and, and, and God heard them, but God remembers them, and now God is responding to her. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So does, does, does Hannah leave there and immediately everything is better? No, but she leaves there in faith. She leaves there, in fact, as Eli said, in peace. And so she goes away and then God remembers and God hears her prayer. God answers her prayers and gives her the son she's been longing for. Right now, just contrast this a little bit with our last series through Exodus. God would show up in amazing ways. God would part the Red Sea and save them from Egypt, come bearing down on them to kill them or delivered them from slavery or would give them water from a rock or food, literally food from heaven that would fall down for them and the, the birds that would just land there, kind of just delivered to them for meat, right? All those things. And then we'd see in the next verse that they would grumble and complain and, and it just, they weren't that. And, and then here's Hannah. There's a contrast, right? That she leaves there. She worships God. She celebrates. She leaves looking visibly different, and God remembers her, and she celebrates this, right? She remembers how this son arrives. She knows this is of God. Where do we fit in that category today as a church? Do we, 
Do we know God is among us and then forget and grumble through our circumstances, coronavirus or you know, economy or politics or any, any of the st- things that are going on? Do we know God is among us and see God move and then have a short memory and just go back to grumbling and complaining like Israel in the desert, wandering, grumbling? Or are we more like Hannah? And that's something we just have to each ask ourselves, okay, do we remember God? Do we see God in this? Do we constantly keep what God is doing in front of us, not what God is not doing? Verse 21, it says, the man Elkanah and his, all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now there's, there's uh, it's, it's another year, maybe more later, right? It's this annual summit to Shiloh that his family would go and worship. So it's either a year later or maybe two, right? So he's going back there. But it says this, that he was going to offer, make his offering to the Lord and then the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. And there's this, there's this culture, and we talked a little bit about this in Exodus. And God tells Moses and, and the people of Israel in Exodus 13 that, listen, because I delivered you out of Egypt and I did so by killing the firstborn in the land of all Egypt. He says, now the firstborn man, the firstborn animal that you have is mine, right? You dedicate that to me. So your firstborn son you give to me or your firstborn, you know, sheep or whatever you give to me. It's an, it's an offering. But with the humans, because you can offer a lamb, you can go offer your son, right? So with humans, they said, or you can redeem them. You can buy them back. You can give a larger, you can pay your vow, and take your son home with you. But every time this happens, you have your first son, this is what you're going to do. You're going to give that son to me, or you're going to buy him back. And the reason is, when your kids ask you, why are we doing this? It's because God delivered us by striking the firstborn of all Egypt. And so because of that, the firstborn is holy to the Lord. And so here's what Elkanah does. He is going up now to fulfill that. So again, he's, he's, a, he's a believer. He's a, a good guy. He's going to do what God has told them they must do. He's going to go and buy back his son, right? It's, it's kind of an amazing story to be on the other side, just on the other side of Christmas, right? As, as there's a miracle pregnancy that bears Christ to the world. There's a, there's a lot of this going on. Hannah is a barren woman who is now having a son named Samuel, right? There's a lot of this, and the, and the gospel is just so present in this story. And the gospel, remember, is, is that God loves you. He created you. He designed you. He loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. But sin severs that relationship. We all sin. And, not, and, and when, we, when we do things that, that God has said not to do, or we don't do the things that God has called us to, when we do that, we're, we're sinning, right? We're, we're severing, we're, we're cheating on that relationship with God, right? And it, and it separates us. And so because of that, Jesus, the whole very thing that we just spent time in Advent talking about, so because of that, to restore the relationship, to redeem the people, Jesus entered into human history to live the life that God has called us to live, but we failed, right? And then to die a death in our place, redeeming us, buying us back for God, right? So we, we see this redemption story of Elkanah wanting to buy a son back, a reminder of not only Christmas, but what, God, what the gospel actually does for us, that by Christ's death, we are bought back. We are, we are paid and, and redeemed and, and bought back into God, into relationship with God. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection covers our sin and begins to make us and reshape us into a new people. Jesus' death covers our sin. His resurrection gives us new life. His ascension, as he promised 
fills us with his spirit, right? That promise of baptism. And then our hope comes from his promised return. So in this gospel moment, we see this thousands of years ago as Elkanah is going to go and, and buy back his son. But remember, that's not what Hannah agreed to. Hannah said, God, if you'll give me a son, I will give him to you, right? I will just give him over to the priesthood. He's yours. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So here's Hannah's response. Elkanah wants to go redeem him, and, and we don't know what Elkanah knows. We can assume Hannah told him about the prayer, but he's thinking, well, I can go buy him. I can go redeem him back, right? We, we kind of assume that a bit, but Hannah remembers her prayer, and Hannah says, no, I'm not going to go with you this year. My baby is still nursing, right? He's still young. When he's finished nursing, we'll take him, and we're leaving him there. That's what I promised God I would do. I just want you to hear this in this moment. I want you to see Hannah's faith in contrast to everybody else's, really. And then ask ourselves, well, what does that mean for you and I, right? Like, what are the things that we owe to God, that we are to do, that God has called us to, or that maybe we've promised to God that we would do, that when things start to get better and we're not in such that crisis moment, maybe we overlook or forget. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him only, and may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. I don't love Elkanah's response here, like, okay, we'll do what you think is best, right? Well, I would love it if Elkanah in this moment was like, cool, we owe God, like, this is the promise we made, or this is a promise you made to God, and here's the right thing to do. But really, Elkanah is a product of his day, much like we are today. It's kind of a do what you think is right. Well, okay, whatever seems best to you. That's, that's Elkanah, the husband, the leader of his home. That's, that's the best he's got in this moment. I want to read you this verse out of Judges, the book just prior to this. There's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which is four short chapters, and then for Samuel, right? So this is just like literally two pages prior to this. Joshua 21, 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every did, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sentence right there at the end of Judges, that's the final word in Judges, right? Then there's a short story of Ruth. We're into 1 Samuel. That's, that sentence right there sums up the people of that day. Everybody kind of does what is right in their own eyes. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with Christians. Well, I think this. Well, I think this. Well, what should we do here? Well, I think we should do this. But not because God says this in Scripture, right? Well, I, I don't know. This feels right to me. There's a lot of that in our culture. We sound a lot like the people thousands of years ago where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And I'm sure the people here in 1 Samuel, I'm sure Elkanah and Hannah and Eli and and his sons, and the others that we'll meet, I'm sure some of what they believe is shaped by Scripture, right? Some of the things are what God has told them. I mean, after all, they were trekking off to go to this annual worship ceremony that God had called them to. So some of it's shaped by God, but then some of it isn't. Some of it is just what seems best to me, what seems best to you. And that's where they get in trouble, is they, they default to, well, here's what seems right in my eyes, not necessarily what God says. So here's a note for you what is right in our own eyes. Doing what we think is good or right is often what gets us into the mess we're in. God desires us to do what he commanded, nothing more, nothing less. 
So there's a lot there. We have to know what God has commanded us, right? We have to be faithful enough to respond to that. And, and all that's fine and dandy when it's like go to worship once a year and go do this thing that you enjoy up at Shiloh. But it's a whole other thing. When you're barren decade after decade, how do you honor God in the hardship? So modern day way of looking at this, how do we honor God right now in the midst of the coronavirus restrictions, in the midst of this pandemic where people are sick and people are doing this, but also people are struggling and, and they're, they're having a hard time learning in school online or working from home or the economy, maybe they've lost work or whatever it is. Right now is the hardship, right? It's the thing that we're going through that is hard. How we respond to it, do we do what we think is right in our own eyes? Well, we'll just kind of, we'll do this because this seems good to me. Or are we really looking to see what is God saying? And even though it's hard and even though it, it, it's painful and challenging to do what God has called us to do, we commit to doing that. Hannah does what is right in God's eyes. Elkanah's cool with doing what's right in her eyes. Verse 24, and when she had weaned him, meaning Samuel, the baby, she took him up with her along with her three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This word, lent to the Lord, in another translation says he is dedicated, as long as he's alive, he is dedicated to the Lord. And that probably captures it a bit more. It's the idea that this is my son, but because of this vow, instead of redeeming him, I'm giving him back. Still my son, but I'm keeping my word. I'm giving him back to God. He will serve God all his life under a vow because I made a promise to God. And so I'm lending him back to God. I'm giving God my son because actually God gave me the son. And so she says this. It's this beautiful follow-up to this very challenging life that she's lived. She's been without a child, but God has given her this child, but now she won't even raise it. She's weaned it, so it's still very, her son's very young, but he will be raised in the house of the Lord. He'll be raised in the temple by the priesthood. So she took him up there along with a three-year-old bull and ephah flower, a skin of wine. They went up and they worshiped together. They slaughtered this bull. They made a sacrifice. They made the bread that would go with it and, and the wine that would go with it. And she worshiped and she worshiped and then handed her son over. That's a beautiful picture coming out of Easter, knowing that the birth of Christ starts here, but we know that the story, this story has this great trajectory that ends at the cross, at the, the death and resurrection, right? The empty tomb and the ascension. We, we know that this is the story of Jesus, but we celebrate this, this initial moment when Christ, God, becomes flesh. That was our Christmas celebration, knowing all the rest is to come. She celebrates in this moment with her son, young as he is, knowing that God has a great big plan for him. And so Samuel will become a prophet that you and I get to follow along with. He will help with the kings that are to come. This story will be shaped by this, but he will be one of the essential characters in this story. And all of this begins with a faithful woman living in a context that is lukewarm at best with a jaded priesthood, a husband who kind of just says, hey, whatever you think is right, okay, who's kind of caught up in the culture more than he is in what God has called him to, 
but Hannah, a faithful woman, does what is right. Today we have the opportunity of taking communion together, and it's right at this point where she goes in and sacrifices this bull, right, and then she makes the bread and drinks the wine, and she has this whole thing, and we get to do part of that, right? We have the the bread and the cup, and we have that because Christ, his blood, has satisfied all the sacrifices. There's no bull, that's, you know, just why we don't slaughter animals in church, which would, is really good, right? Um, but we do, we take the cup and the bread, and we do so in remembrance of Christ. So if you have that with you, would you, would you take that out right now? And, and if you have this, if you have what we've sent you, you know, you peel the top back, and there is a wafer of flat bread in the top, this unleavened bread. And when Jesus sat with his disciples before the crucifixion, before he went to the cross, he sat there and he took the bread and he broke it. He blessed it. He prayed, God, will you bless this? And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And then it says he took the cup and he blessed it in the same way. He prayed over it. God, will you bless this? Will you use this to strengthen them? And he took the cup and he says, this is a covenant in my blood, right? He's he's getting ready to go to the cross now. He's going to give his life for you and for me. He tells his disciples, it's a covenant, a promise in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. He says, drink of this, right? All of you do this in remembrance of me. And so I'm going to pray for us. We have the opportunity to celebrate the gospel today. As we flash back to Hannah and Samuel, we see the, we see the sacrifice and we see the worship and we see God, God's fulfillment of her, prom, of her prayers, God's promise to her. We get to celebrate in that moment, not knowing necessarily what lies ahead of us, but that God is faithful in it. If we will be faithful to God, God will fulfill his word to us. And we need to do so today by taking communion. Will you pray with me and we'll take the elements together? Jesus, again, as we gather today, we are greatly uh, just uh, blessed to be yours. That instead of being offered off to a priest or to given away or something, that you have bought us back. Right? Instead of being left to the world, left to the sin that we have chosen all in our lives, you have bought us back, that we are now sons and daughters of God because of you. And all of us, as we gather, as we celebrate communion, we take this bread, we remember that it was your body broken. You suffered that we might not have to. You suffered that we might be made whole. And so you took our brokenness away, and you gave us your wholeness instead. And so will you bless this bread? Will you bless this bite as we take it together as a family, even at distance over the internet? Generations Church, will you take the bread? And in Jesus, in the same way, you took the cup and you blessed it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, this is a promise, a covenant in my blood that your sins are forgiven. What great hope as we look at a culture that people who even believers just kind of were caught up in the culture and we know that's us, that we celebrate your forgiveness, that your blood covers our sins, sins we know of, sins we're aware of, sins we do on purpose, and then the things that we do that we just miss the mark. You cover all those things in us because your death covered our sin. And so this cup celebrates that. It's a covenant in your blood. And so I ask, as we take it today, will you wash over us again? Generations Church, take the cup.
Jesus in this small way as we celebrate this visual, tangible bread and cup. Will you strengthen us with your spirit as you have created us to be yours? Call us forward. Make us an obedient people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.